Our Father, we're grateful that you've brought us together on this Sunday night, on this Trinity Sunday. And we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to perceive the wonders of your law, that you would stoop low by your Holy Spirit to speak to us the very words of Christ. And we ask you to do these things so that we would see him and know him and love him more. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening to everybody and um, and happy Trinity Sunday. Tuck that somewhere. We're going to come back to it. We're going to work through Matthew tonight, the, the gospel reading that we just heard read so well. Um, and before we turn to that, let, let me think out loud with you for a few minutes. Um, I think without doubt, one of the pressing questions over the past century, at least one of the pressing questions in the Western world, has had to do with human identity. What does it mean to be a person? What does it mean to be human? And maybe even to put it more simply, what does it mean to be? Um, there's a famous short story. Maybe some of you had to read it in, as a high school student or in college by Franz Kafka called Metamorphosis. Do you remember reading this? Young man wakes up in the morning in the body of a cockroach, then lives his whole life as a cockroach, eventually getting squashed in the end. You know, Kafka's fantastical story reflects the shifting sands of the modern world, where the normal course of human living becomes something unrecognizable. It's unpredict unpredictable. It's as good as a cockroach uh, making sense of his inhabitable world. You know, philosophers like to raise these kinds of questions. 20th century philosophers. Here's a question that comes right out of the philosophy handbook. Why is there something and not nothing? That's probably why some of you majored in economics and not that. So the answer given to these kinds of big questions in our lives have been given all kinds of, the questions have been given all kinds of answers, especially in the arts. The thing about Freddie Mercury, right? How about this one? Mama didn't mean to make you cry. If I'm not back again this time tomorrow, can't you hear him? Carry on, carry on, for nothing really matters. Now, these are the big questions of human existence. Especially in the Western world, I think, where we have the time and the luxury to ruminate on these deep existential matters. Who are we? Why are we here? And in Freddie Mercury's haunting question, does it even matter? Now, I'm not sure if you get lost in these kinds of questions. I imagine many of you do. And I'm not, I'm not going to bleed in front of you tonight, but I will myself admit to you that I have my own moments of getting lost in these kinds of basic existential questions as I try to think through all the energy and the efforts that I give to my life and calling, my hopes and my dreams and my, and my sorrows. Matthew's gospel ends where these questions begin. What are our lives all about? What does it mean to be a human in fellowship with Jesus Christ? What is my vocation as a Christian in this world of ours? But Jesus models something for us here. And I want you to look closely at this text together. He models something for us in this final scene of Matthew's Gospel about the proper order of raising these kinds of basic questions. Because before Jesus turns to us to tell us who we are, he wants to make sure that we understand who he is. Because that's the primary question. That's the really basic question. Jesus, who are you? And Jesus clarifies for us in this text here who he is before he turns to our identity. Why? 
Because from a Christian standpoint, the Christian standpoint of faith and revealed religion, the identity of Jesus, it's basic. It's foundational. And the identity of Jesus shapes how we ask every other question in our lives, even the haunting questions that keep us up late at night. So the first stopping point in this text tonight is, Jesus, who are you? What's the identity of Jesus? And you see the narrative and how it begins. When they saw him, and Jesus took them up onto that mountain, when they saw him, they worshipped him on that mountain. That arrested me this, even this morning, hearing that text read out loud. When they saw him, they worshipped him on the mountain. What appears in the narrative as a kind of simple setting up of the forthcoming discourse and teaching on Jesus is actually so much more. What are they doing on the mountain? I mean, Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew on a mountain, teaching the law of God on the mountain, on the Beatitudes. And here he is again at the end of his ministry, teaching on a mountain. It's on a mountain in the Old Testament where God descends and, and meets his people at Sinai. So here's Jesus on a mountain, and they're worshiping him. And what, what's the significance of that? They recognize that in Jesus, that his identity is the identity of Israel's God. He is the identity of the one that Israel worshipped. They're recognizing when they worship him that Jesus is God. And there's a culminating move in Matthew's Gospel. A sense that this figure Jesus that we followed along in the narrative is so much more than we could have anticipated. We're told early on in Matthew that he's Emmanuel, God with us. But the full implications of that elude us until we get to this moment here. And on this mountain, we have a view of Jesus on display that we know now, yes, Jesus is a prophet. But he's so much more than a prophet. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. But he's more than that. Yes, Jesus is Israel's king. But he's also so much more than that. He's God in human flesh. Whatever can be said about God, whatever can be claimed about Israel's creator, can be said of Jesus of Nazareth, that first century man who kicked up dust walking on the roads of that first century world. This figure who on a mountain top is now claiming after his humiliation at the cross and his exaltation at the resurrection, he's claiming that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Do you remember the temptation of Jesus? Our first reading in Lent, where I mean, the temptation where Satan offers him the authority of the world and he says, no, I won't do that now. I'm only going to worship God and God alone. And now we have at this moment, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus being given all that authority because of his obedience and his humiliation and his exaltation. So can I say something tonight? I mean, you're, well, you're here. Um, about the doctrine of the Trinity and not lose you on this Trinity Sunday. I was reading in the blogosphere this week. There's a couple of theology nerd blogs that I read. And I was reading in the, in the blog world uh, where one theologian said, if we want to preserve the doctrine of the Trinity, do these ten things. I think number three or four on the list was abolish Trinity Sunday. Don't let preachers anymore try to explain it. Do away with it. That's probably fair enough. But here we are. 
So there have been all kinds of attempts in the modern world to make sense of the Trinity in a way that makes the Trinity practical, uh, relevant. Kind of list some of these for you. The doctrine of the Trinity might provide for us a model for how we relate to one another and mutual submission, the so-called social trinity. The trinity might help married partners know how they relate to one another and in their particular roles. And there's all kinds of thought processes out there about the practicality of the doctrine of the trinity for the modern Christian. And the list kind of goes on and on. And, I, and some of these insights can be helpful between us tonight. Not very many of them. But some of them can be helpful. But this is why I think it goes off track. The doctrine of the Trinity doesn't need this kind of um, practical uh, uh, measuring up, per se. The doctrine of the Trinity is primary and basic because it helps us to know God and His ways, and so that we can name Him, so that we can pray to Him, so that you can know tonight when we're together that our prayers are real prayers because we're praying to the Father, by the Son, in the Spirit. And that tomorrow morning when you wake up and you pray, you're praying in the name of the Trinity. You're praying to the Father and the Son by the Spirit. This is completely liberating for you in the way in which you pray and interact with Jesus, with God. Um, this is, I'm off script. But if you, you, you've um, been in prayer meetings before where someone's prayers are so articulate and measured and beautiful and bordering on the lyrical and and then it comes to your turn to pray and you're like uh i think i'll pass you know next person i want to learn to pray like that person and i'm not i'm not saying we don't grow in our prayers i need to be nuanced to this i get it but can i tell you something beautiful about a trinitarian view of praying do you know what jesus does for you when you pray he takes your words bumbling and human as they are and he cleans them up and He presents them to the Father by the Spirit on your behalf every time you pray. I mean, isn't that a beautiful thing? So just pray away. I mean, they can sound horrible, but, but pray away. Why? Because Jesus is praying to the Father by the Spirit on your behalf. We're baptized in the name of the Trinity. In short, what I'm trying to say is the Trinity is the Gospel. This doesn't need to be made practical and, and necessarily in the ways in which we think about practicality. It's the gospel. It's the good news that the Father and the Son and the Spirit from eternity past in a mutual relationship of love willed together in a singular will to redeem you for His own glory. You're in the mind and the singular will of God from eternity past, and He's determined to be a God for you. And we can worship Him and praise Him because Jesus has all authority, He has all power, He's revealed the Father by the Spirit. The Father sends the Son to redeem us, and the Spirit will keep us to the end. That's really practical, because that's the Gospel. So what appears as such an obscure doctrine, is written, esoteric, is at the very core of our of our Christian existence. It's the gospel. It's the hope that we have. And if this is true, if knowing who Jesus is first and foremost leads us to a true knowledge of who we are as followers of Him, because if Jesus really is who He says He is, if He really does have all authority of God's kingdom, if that's true, then it changes everything. The stakes are so high if what Jesus is saying here 
is true. Because Jesus will refuse to be domesticated. The kind of placement of Jesus on the mantle of our hearts, along with all the other little life trinkets that we might have. No, Jesus said, all authority is mine. I'm God, I'm your Savior, and this confession changes everything, especially our understanding of who we are, about our identity. And now Jesus is going to tell us, who are we? All of us know the Great Commission. We hear this text read week every year in church. We're familiar with it. But here we go again, being reminded on this Sunday evening about who we really are. We are, in Matthew's terminology, the going ones. We're the pilgrim ones whose lives are, are lived in motion. And it's a motion of, of bearing witness to the one who was and bearing witness to the one who is and bearing witness to the one who is to come. And in this motion existence of ours, in this movement, in this going life, our identities are shaped by the identity of Jesus. Our going is marked by a certain kind of going. What does that going look like? Baptizing and teaching. That's our going. That's our pilgrim existence. This is going to shape your understanding of who you are if Jesus is who he really said he is. I was in the car this morning on the way to another church, and I heard on 105.5 a really good sermon on this text. Yeah, it's on my way out. Um, and Zach, so I'm stealing from Zach. Sorry, brother, I'm stealing. Zach gave a, just a wonderful explanation about this category of baptism being a category that goes beyond the right itself to a, a view of the whole sum of the Christian existence, of what it means to be a Christian. We are the baptized ones. So baptizing speaks to our identity in Jesus Christ. Making disciples who are baptized is making disciples who recognize that all of this stuff about Jesus is true, and he gets everything that relates to me. My whole identity is wrapped up into him. I'm completely his. I'm immersed in his death and in his life and in his resurrection. We're calling people to a new mode of being as we are reminded ourselves that we have been called into a very new mode of existence and relating. We are baptized ones. I've seen it here when we do baptisms in the front and the little kids come streaming in and go catch Andrew, at a funny moment, he'll start throwing water on the kids in the front and tell them, telling them on their way out, remember your baptism. It's a good thing to remember our baptism. Who you really are. I'm the baptized one. I'm one who's been claimed in the waters. But notice something here. This dawned on me this week. Baptism comes before teaching. Baptizing and then teaching. I think this is really important. And I think it's maybe a suggestion. Oh, this, I don't mean to be controversial. But here we are. Maybe it's a suggestion for why infant baptism might just be biblical after all. But I won't chase that. Why? St. Anselm said, Faith itself is what seeks understanding. Or, I believe in order that I might understand. Baptism comes first. Instruction comes second. 
Our identity in Christ as baptized ones opens up to us the very pathway to true knowledge and to true instruction. Want to know something beautiful? Isaiah chapter 2 and Micah chapter 4 are almost carbon copies to one or the other. And this is the promise of what's going to happen in the latter days in those two texts. In the latter days, Mount Zion will be raised as the ultimate mountain. And the nations, all the nations are going to stream to Mount Zion. Why are they streaming like a big river of nations coming to Mount Zion? For one purpose, to be taught by Israel's God. They want to be taught. And what happens when they're taught? Well, it ushers in an era of universal peace. You know this. Think Martin Luther King Jr., right? They take um, swords and they turn them into plowshares. They take um, spears and they turn them into pruning hooks. Instruments of war become instruments now of agriculture as they're taught the teachings of Israel's God. That's the promise of what the future day of God's kingdom is going to look like. The nation's yearning to be taught by God. And here's Jesus on the final scene of Matthew's gospel shaping a kind of hope for the future and what the gospel is going to do by actualizing and enacting what Micah 4 and Isaiah 2 promised so long ago. But now the disciples are streaming to the nations to bring the teaching of Christ. What does it mean to be taught Christ if you are who you say you are? Then we so desperately learn, wish to learn from you. We yearn for you, Jesus, to show us the ancient paths so we might walk in them. Show us the way. Teach us. Instruct us. If you are who you say you are, then we know that all true and right teaching flows from you. And we want it to shape the way in which we view everything in our existence. See, Matthew's gospel ends with a bang, doesn't it? provides a clear picture for us of who Jesus is. He's the very Son of God in communion with the Father by the fellowship of the Spirit. He's God. And it also tells us who we are. Disciples of Jesus. Going ones. Pilgrim ones. Baptized ones called to baptize and to teach and to tell others about this universal dominion of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Jesus is calling us to a new mode of being. A mode of being that's shaped by Jesus in all spheres of life. Can I conclude tonight with these words from Ralph Wood? This is what Ralph Wood says in a book entitled Contending for the Faith. He says, I will argue, in fact, that scripture and tradition provide the church, provide us, with a distinctive kind of existence, with unique ways of birthing and dying, of becoming youthful and growing old, of marrying and remaining single, of celebrating and sacrificing, of thinking and imagining, of worshiping the true God and protesting against false gods, and that these distinctive beliefs and practices constitute the church's own culture. Jesus says that all authority has been given to him. And if that's true, 
then he's called us into a very new mode of being, a new mode of existence, where his authority rules and reigns in all spheres of our lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.